So yeah, we're, doing, uh, we're working our way through a series in Acts we've just started, and uh, as we go through Acts, we're going to be, um, we're going to be noticing a few overall themes that you'll see crop up from time to time. Uh, if you remember, uh, at the beginning, Luke describes how he had previously in his gospel talked about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so Acts, which is his second book, is kind of all that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through the corporate body, his corporate body, his people, the church, and by his spirit. And uh, the sort of themes that we're going to be picking up as we go uh, through Acts, and you'll find them sort of recurring off and on, are things like keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. That was a big thing uh, throughout the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is front and centre, and uh, the early Christians, the first disciples, need to learn to keep in step with the Spirit in all that he's doing, embracing the new thing that he's doing. And then Also, there'll be things to do with challenging powers. So today we'll find him, uh, Peter challenging the crowds. Uh, they challenged the religious authorities, they challenged the um, secular authorities, ultimately the imperial authorities in Rome. So challenging powers is another theme that you'll find us touching on. Embracing change. Of course, we know nothing about embracing change at YCC. I mean, we never do change, do we? So, uh, that was irony for those who missed it. Uh, no, quite genuinely, I really want to affirm um, YCC, you're really, really good at coping with change, because we do do that quite a lot, so thank you. But yeah, embracing change in, in the book of Acts is a big thing, um, moving beyond the kind of Jewish practices and mindsets to realise that God has bigger things in mind, and then finally, that sort of theme in Acts about how we're moving out and stretching out from um, this little nucleus in Jerusalem, uh, to spreading out to Samaria and Damascus and Antioch and further and further and further. And it reaches out eventually to Rome itself and the sort of civilised world at that time. So we covered uh, the first, uh, first chapter um, a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago with Adam, did a couple of talks on that, dealing with the, the encounters that those first Christians had with the resurrected Jesus, which was completely transformative for them. And then uh, two weeks ago, Adam was talking about the appointing of the replacement for Judas, a slightly unusual way of doing it. You haven't got a coin, have you? Toss a coin to see who's in leadership here. Um, so that was a bit of an unusual way of doing it, but uh, they cast lots. But they wanted to appoint somebody else to be a witness to the resurrection. And now we come to the day of Pentecost. It's worth saying that last week, I wasn't here last week, and I'm sorry I missed it because seems like God was doing quite a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, we had a practical taste of the power of God that is now available to us. I know that, uh, uh, from what I hear, some people were healed last week. That's brilliant. Some people stepped out in seeking to hear God for other people. That's fantastic. And I believe that some people, as one or two people, actually gave their allegiance to Jesus for the first time last week, which is brilliant. Yeah. <clears throat> And now I want to sort of step back a little bit and unpack the account of that day from Acts chapter 2. Now, it's rather a lengthy passage. I was frightening some of the, uh, the team earlier on by saying, yes, I'm covering verses 1 to 41. And they all looked a little bit sort of shaken by that. Um, don't worry, I'm going to limit myself. And I'm not going to limit myself to the clock at the back because it's not working. Um, so start waving at me if I'm going on way, way too long. I'll try and keep an eye on it. Um, and I want to do two things. Just briefly at the beginning, I want to talk about 
uh, a little bit about the background and context for the day of Pentecost, just to help us get in the right sort of, to understand things correctly. And then all I'm going to do is, is pick out a few, a number of key phrases as we go through the passage. I'll read, I'll read it as we go, go through. Um, a few key phrases that particularly struck me and that I think we can learn from. So um, this isn't going to be totally comprehensive. That would be difficult, but uh, that's where we're going. So firstly, a little bit of background. So we'll, we'll, oh yes, we've got that. That's good. There we go. Understanding the context. <coughs> so um, if I can read from verse 1, when the, the day of... Uh, when the day of Pentecost had finally arrived, they were all together in the same place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like the sound of a strong blowing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then tongues, seemingly made of fire, appeared to them, moving apart and coming to rest on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the words to say. So this happened on the day of Pentecost. What does Pentecost mean? Well, in the Christian world, you'd be, oh yeah, I've heard of the day of Pentecost, it's got something to do with the Holy Spirit. But of course, Pentecost was a Jewish festival. Um, it came, Pentecost, there's a five in there if you know your Latin, um, it's 50 days after Passover. And of course, if you remember, Jesus had shared the Passover with his disciples just immediately before he was arrested, tortured, or trumped up, Charges were laid before him, and he was judicially murdered. That was just after Passover. And then he'd risen from the dead, and over 40 days, we read back in Acts chapter 1, he'd appeared to his disciples. And so we now get 50 days after Passover, we come to Pentecost. And Pentecost has two meanings, uh, two particular sort of titles in Jewish thinking. One is it's the Feast of Weeks, because it's four uh, five weeks after Passover. But the, the other thing that it was known as is the Festival of First Fruits. That's why I put it up there. The Festival of First Fruits. It's when the first bits of the harvest were gathered in and taken to the temple. It was the beginning of new creation, a breaking out of that new life that was actually initiated when Jesus rose from the dead. And that kind of new life bursting out, the beginning of new creation. How appropriate then that this is the day that the Holy Spirit falls and is poured out on those first disciples. We see echoes of that elsewhere in the New Testament. This idea of first fruits. Romans 8, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly as we work, e wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the re redemption of our bodies. Again, that uh, theme of new creation, new birth, new life, a whole new way, um, start of something brand new, new creation that God is bringing to birth, and we have the first fruits of that. We ourselves are first fruits, James 1 says. We are the first fruits. We're those people who are the beginning of new creation. And we carry the first fruits of the Spirit, as from that passage in Romans 8. We're the beginning of the life of the age to come. So look around you. Look at the people on either side, front and behind you. We 
are the beginning of the life of the age to come. A bit of progress yet to go, but we're the start of that, and we carry the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so moving on. Um, <clears throat> then we have the signs. And if you, from that passage, um, we remember that there was, a, there was a sound like a mighty rushing wind. There was a loud noise, a, the wind, there was the fire. And all of those things are associated with God's powerful presence. And if you were a Jew at the time, you would have picked up the echoes of that from Exodus. Do you remember in Exodus, the burning bush? Come across that one? You know, where God's presence met with Moses in a, a bush that seemed to be on fire, but sort of wasn't burnt up. Um, that was God's presence. And then, you know, the people of Israel were led out from Egypt across the desert by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was God's presence that was evident in fire. And then it's most clearly seen in uh, when they got to Mount Sinai, the, the people of Israel on their journeys. And I'll, I'll read a bit from, uh, from Exodus uh, 19. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because of the Lord descending on it in a fire, and the smoke billowed up from, from it like the smoke from a furnace. And the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. And the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down again and warn the people so that they don't force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them would perish. Why did I read that? <clears throat> because the whole thing of this loud noise and fire speaks of God's presence, but there's a key difference. Instead of Moses going up the mountain to the fearful, awesome, scary presence of God, here we have God's presence coming down to meet with his people. Just a complete turnaround. Instead of Moses up the mountain and nobody else allowed to go there because they get done, um, God descends, but there's fire and there's a loud noise. The echoes are there. It is the presence of God, but it is coming down to meet with his people. And yes, it was bewildering and powerful, but it wasn't threatening like at Sinai. God didn't simply display his power. He was now sharing it. The Lord didn't merely descend in fire on the mountain. He descended in power onto the disciples. And we can talk on another occasion about how that change could take place, but all to do with Jesus. Okay, then... <clears throat> Verse 5, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem at the time. And when they heard the noise, they came together in a crowd and they were deeply puzzled because every single one of them could hear them speaking in his or her own native language. They were astonished and amazed. These men who are doing the speaking are all Galileans, aren't they? They said. How is it that each of us can hear them in our own mother tongues? And then he talks about all the different nationalities that were there on that day. And they said, we can hear them telling about the powerful things God has done in our own languages. So we've then got the languages. It's hard to read that, particularly in the context of 
people from all nations having come together on this day of Pentecost, being there in Jerusalem at the time, and hearing about this thing about languages without picking up the obvious echoes from the Old Testament and the story of the Tower of Babel. You may, may remember that one. And in that context, there was, uh, uh, there was the, uh, mankind's pride and arrogance, and God thwarted that by bringing, introducing chaos and division amongst the arrogant people by confusing their languages. And now that curse, and it was a curse, is revoked, is done away with, and unity begins to, be, uh, begins to arise. Now that curse of their confused languages is kind of undone. And they all hear God's amazing works spoken of in their own languages. The beginning of unity. Unity is another theme we'll come across in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Really important for those first believers that people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, men and women, that they would actually find a way to be united and one, one body. Uh, it's just worth mentioning passing. The tongues that are mentioned here in Acts are a little unusual uh, in that they were actual languages. When we encounter that gift, uh, the gift of tongues or languages uh, in, for example, 1 Corinthians 14, it's explicitly made clear that those tongues are not comprehensible to most people there. That's why you have the gift of interpretation. Um, but here in Acts, they were actual languages. And I know there are examples even today of people speaking in tongues and actually unknowingly speaking in languages, but that's not normally the case. So Peter then gets up and explains to the crowd what's taken place and its significance. So let's move on. And as I say, I just want to pick up a few phrases. Verse 12, everyone was astonished and perplexed. What does this all mean? They were asking each other. What does it all mean? And that's always a leading question. It's always important to ask that question. Not merely what on earth is happening, which is obviously what some of these people were wondering, you know, this noise and this fire and, and these people speaking. Not just what's happening, but what does it mean? It is and can be quite easy for us to focus just on what is going on, what is happening, what the Holy Spirit appears to be doing. If God appears to be doing stuff in people's lives, maybe we're praying with them and, and maybe they're um, reacting in a particular way. Maybe they're crying or maybe they're very quiet or, or maybe they're very noisy or maybe they fall over. Um, and it's easy to say, oh, isn't this exciting? God's doing something. But the key question to ask in that is, yes, by all means, notice that God's doing something, and that's great, but what does it mean? And if we're praying for somebody and the Holy Spirit is active, we need to ask that question, what does it mean? What is the Holy Spirit actually trying to do beyond the uh, outward expressions that sometimes accompany that? I was, uh, as a leadership team, we had the, the pleasure of meeting with, uh, with a Christian leader, Alan Scott, this last week. And I was looking back over some stuff that he'd been teaching a couple of years ago. And he makes this quote. The people who change communities are the people who have insight into what is happening when the Holy Spirit is actively involved. The people who change communities are the people who have insight into what's happening when the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work. We long to see the Holy Spirit powerfully at work, not just in this room 
or amongst this body of believers, nor amongst the other congregations of the town where we pray he would also be powerfully active. We long for to see him actively, powerfully present, out in the community, in your school, supermarket, amongst your neighbours, in your workplace. That's our aspiration, to see the Holy Spirit powerfully at work in the public sphere, as it was indeed on the day of Pentecost. And when that happens, we have to ask ourselves whether we are able, whether we are competent to explain what is happening. Are we really ready and equipped to explain what this means? Next phrase. Again, verse 13. But some sneered or mocked. They're full of new wine, they said. In other words, they're drunk. Some sneered. Whenever the Holy Spirit is at work, there will always be those who mock. Always be those who will kind of sneer at it and, and belittle it. it. It bugs me, but I understand it. Um, in the media, very often... You'll get someone from the media, they'll go to uh, a church gathering and people there will be wholeheartedly worshipping God. One of our visions for this year, to wholeheartedly be involved in worship. Give ourselves totally to it. And what do you read in the newspaper? Oh, there were a load of happy clappies. Really? Is that the best you can do? To mock it like that? It's easy to do. And we need not to be thrown. Don't be thrown by some people being dismissive when the Holy Spirit's work. Some people will be. Uh, they were here in, uh, on the day of Pentecost. Some were, were criticising it. They're just drunk. How many people have ever accused you of being drunk because you're so full of the presence of God? Just thought. Um, but yeah, people will sometimes dismiss it. They will sometimes mock don't be thrown by that. Just expect, you know, when, when Paul was, was preaching and, and was sharing, he got mocked. Disciples got mocked. It, it does happen. But don't be thrown by that. But also, just beware of cynicism ourselves. You know? Whenever we're sort of looking at other people, always remember to look at ourselves. We're increasingly... Eager to see, as I've said, God evidently work in the community beyond here, and some will mock. But we need to look at ourselves and need to be careful that we don't become cynics ourselves. We see the Holy Spirit doing stuff, and it's uh, maybe be a bit, you know, maybe it's a bit over the top, and we can become cynical. Sure, not everything that claims to be of God is totally and wholly and uncorruptedly sort of entirely him yeah there's maybe a bit of emotionalism there as well a little bit of human stuff mixed in with it but let's be very very careful because jesus warns very very carefully against attributing the work of the holy spirit to anything else we need to be very careful that we don't become cynical uh, when when the holy spirit is at work Then verse 14, then Peter got up with the eleven and he spoke to them in a loud voice. People of Judea, he began, and all of you staying here in Jerusalem, there's something you need to know. Listen to what I'm saying. These people aren't drunk as you imagine. 
It's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about when he said, and then he goes on to quote a passage from the Old Testament book of Joel. This is that, was what Peter was saying. This is that. And if we want to recognize and understand the significance of what the Holy Spirit is doing in a particular situation, we need to become familiar with the narrative of Scripture. And you've probably heard me banging on about that from time to time. But if we want to understand and recognize the significance of what the Holy Spirit is doing, we do need to become familiar with a wider narrative of Scripture. Why? Well, because then we recognize the echoes that we're supposed to hear or observe in what's going on. We'll remember the promises that are being fulfilled. We'll recognize the dangers that we're, and warnings that we need to be alert to and the encouragements that apply to our current situation. I know Jesus promises us that when we are sometimes uh, unexpectedly hauled before others to explain ourselves, that the Holy Spirit will give us words, give us the appropriate words to say, and that's great. He says, you know, he will bring to mind everything I've said. Yeah, well, if he's going to bring it to mind, we don't need to make his job harder. We need to give him some material to work with. We need to immerse ourselves, soak ourselves in the narrative of Scripture so that we can say like Peter, this is that. I see now, this applies here. This is that. Verse 17, in the last days, declares God, this is um, Peter continuing to quote from the prophecy of Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams and even on your slaves, men and women alike, I will pour out my spirit in those days. On all people. As the song goes, we're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son. It applies to everyone. The Holy Spirit is available to all Sons and daughters, old and young, men and women of every so social class. See, under the old covenant, which we read about in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was only given to the odd person here or there. So you had you know, a few key leaders, the, the special people. Your Moses and your Elijahs and, and King David and those sorts of people, the special ones. They had the Holy Spirit poured out on them, but not so much anybody else or very rarely. But now, it's available for all, for everyone. No one is excluded if they're a follower of Jesus. And I love the, the echoes here of, of a cry of Moses. I don't know whether you've ever come across this passage. It's in, in Numbers chapter 11. And the context here is that... Um, Moses has got a load of uh, 70 helpers who uh, assist him in leading the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are moaning and God's saying, look, I'm going to show up and I'm going to show you and demonstrate that I am more than capable of feeding you in the desert. That's the context. And so Moses uh, gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. And then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied. 
But this never happened again. Then two men, Edad and Medad, and I know there's a pun in there somewhere and we're not going to go there. Two men, Edad and Medad, had stayed before, uh, behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they'd not gone out to the tabernacle. And yet the spirit rested upon them as well. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and reported to Moses, Edad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Oh my goodness me, this will never do. And Joshua, the son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant, said to his, uh, since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. <laughs> Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. This is that. This event is the fulfilment of the yearning, the longing of Moses. God makes it available freely. And they shall prophesy. That's the second half of verse 18. Quoting from, the, from that prophecy of Joel, <clears throat> even on slaves, men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then, actually, Peter tags a bit on the end. And they will prophesy. It's actually not there in Joel. He's kind of repeating it from an earlier verse. But the point is that Peter wanted to stress that the primary mark of the Holy Spirit coming on people was actually that we become prophetic people. That's, perhaps above everything else, the evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work. They shall prophesy. As I said, in the Old Testament, there was this sense that only a handful of people would hear God. Just a few special ones. They had the Holy Spirit poured out on them, and they were able to hear God and have some sort of direct relationship with God. But that wasn't generally true. Whereas now, the pr privilege is that we all have that direct relationship with God, that we could all hear God for ourselves. We don't have to rely on just a handful of special people. Whether they're at the front, standing on a stage on a Sunday morning here, we can, or, or, or any other special people, we can all hear God for ourselves. I was reading one preacher talking on this passage. Uh, he remarked that some of us may be quite familiar with the term the priesthood of all believers. You know, it's, yeah, we are a kingdom of priests, so yeah, that applies. He suggested that maybe we should speak at least as much about the prophethood of all believers because actually that is our uh, our inheritance within uh, since Pentecost. Now, I know when I say that, uh, there will be a, a whole chunk of you in this room who will say, yeah, but it's not as easy as that. I don't hear God much. It's all very well talking about, you know, having this direct relationship and hearing God, but it isn't easy always to know what God wants to say to us or is say, wants to say through us and we're certainly not infallible when we step out and do that sometimes it can seem like God is kind of really silent or maybe we're just profoundly deaf but the spirit is given to open up the potential for each of us and I for one want to develop my hunger and my thirst so that the realm of the prophetic, not necessarily standing at the front and prophesying, but that realm of hearing God becomes a more regular practice for me. I want that. I want that 
for all of us. And yes, it's sometimes difficult. And yes, we have to press into that. And yes, we have to step out and try that sometimes. And, you know, the number of people who've said to me, you know, I don't think, um, I, don't think I really hear God. I did have this thought, but I'm sure it's not God. Well, maybe, maybe just try it. Maybe step out. It's one of the reasons why here at YCC we, we tend to not do, make a big song and dance like, thus says the Lord about this. We, we tend to couch it as a, I think God might be saying this, because we may get it wrong. But step out with what you think. You'd be surprised how often you're right. Then in verse 22, whoops, a daisy, <coughs> nearly there. Uh, Peter goes on to remind the crowd about Jesus, the amazing miracles, uh, and the recent events. Oh, there you are. Put that there, then you can see it. Um, the amazing miracles that he's done, and the recent events, and his judicial murder. Uh, they'd all have been well aware of that. What they wouldn't have been aware of was that Jesus didn't stay dead, uh, that he had not remained that way. And so he again, again, Peter explains this within the context of God's bigger plans, uh, quoting from, from David in the Psalms. God raised him from the dead, Peter says, quoting from one of the Psalms. Now, we can debate and discuss and disagree about a whole range of things in terms of Christian understanding, theology, doctrine, whatever else. There are some things that people can hold different views about, how we should understand this or how we should explain that. But one element that is absolutely fundamental and non-negotiable is that Jesus was raised to life. That's was so fundamental, that's why they had to appoint Matthias as an extra witness, just to make it absolutely clear there could be no mistaking this. These disciples had, over an extended period, met with Jesus after he rose from the dead. They'd talked with him, they'd seen him, they'd touched him, they'd eaten food with him, they'd seen him individually, they'd seen him in small groups and larger groups. They knew. The awkward historical fact of the physical resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the Christian message. Make no apology. Everything hinges on it. And then Peter goes on, verse 60, uh, 36. So the whole house of Israel must know this for a fact. God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, the one that you crucified. Now, there is a time for being subtle, gentle, a little bit oblique, a little bit cautious in how we explain and encourage people gently to perhaps consider the possibility that they might want to think about Jesus. You can, you know, there is a place for that. This wasn't that place. The whole house of Israel must know this for a fact. God has made him, Jesus, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Ouch, that's a bit sharp-edged. And this was the Peter who, five weeks ago, hadn't even been able to dare to admit to a servant girl that he even knew Jesus. See what the Holy Spirit in an encounter with the resurrected Jesus does. Lord and Messiah, King and Christ, ruler, redeemer, master, saviour, 
It's a bit of a theme of mine at present, so bear with me, but we really do need to get our heads around the fact that the gospel is not a me-centred message about the need to be rescued, but rather a summons to submit to a new master. That's what Peter was doing. I was reading a book uh, recently uh, that had this delightful quote. Perhaps we must stop asking people to invite Jesus into their hearts and start asking them to swear public allegiance to Jesus the King. That's what we're talking about. We don't make a distinction between Jesus as Saviour and Jesus as Master. We're called to submit to a new king. That's what the challenge of Jesus, the challenge of Peter to this crowd was. Time to draw to a close. Some other things we could, what should we do? That's always the question. Not sure. The question is never, what new ideas would you suggest that I'd like to begin to think about? Or what new group do you think I might want to link up with? It's always the challenge of the Holy Spirit is, what should I do? What do I need to do? And in answer to that, turn back and be baptised. Quite clear, quite explicit. Yes, a complete turnaround, recognising our failure and our guilt and submitting to a new master. And baptism is the outward sign of that. Baptism crystallises that. It symbolises that. It is the public declaration of that turnaround. What should I do? This is what you should do. Now, we've got Easter Sunday coming up in a few weeks' time, and we've chosen to give the opportunity for baptism on Easter Sunday. Uh, it may be something you want to think about if you're a follower of Jesus. The one who secured your forgiveness, declare that. Seal that. Symbolize that. Crystallize that. Make it tangible, visible. Express it in baptism. And then finally, in verse 38, Peter goes on, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you, and for your children, and for everyone who is far away, as many as the Lord will call. The promise is for you. I remember um, quite a long time ago, uh, growing up in a context where there was all sorts of debates about how and when and on whom we should or should not expect the Holy Spirit to be poured out, and what this should or should not look like and I came to the conclusion after hearing no end of talks and reading no end of stuff on this that this was all an exercise in missing the point of course there are some unique elements to Pentecost it was the first time but the promise is for you for me for us as I draw to a close Julie would you like to bring the band back up that would be great thank you we need to avoid missing the point. If I'm committed to Jesus, then the promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit made available to me, the presence of God falling upon, being poured out upon, filling me, this promise is for me. And whatever my current experience of the Holy Spirit, the offer remains 
the Holy Spirit to fill me more. You've all heard it. Well, many of you, I guess, will have heard it. You know, why do we keep needing to be filled with the Spirit? Because I leak. We'll go on into Acts and we'll see that this wasn't the only time that these believers got filled with the Holy Spirit. This was the first time. But it, a few chapters on, we find it again. Then we find individuals who are persistently filled with the Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul tells us all to not get drunk with wine, but to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. The issue is never the desire of Jesus to pour out his Spirit on me. It is usually my level of hunger and persistence. I quite like it. I quite like to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's kind of, you know, whatever. No, it's available. The Holy Spirit wants to fill me fresh, new, perpetually, continually, repeatedly. I just need to hunger it, hunger for it more. Take every opportunity. I love it when I see some people, sometimes when we pray for people. Um, and, you know, sometimes the same people go up all the time. Have you noticed that? You know, we offer a prayer ministry and the same people always respond. Now, you can be cynical about that if you like and sort of say, oh, gosh, they must have massive problems or whatever. No, mostly it's because those are the people who are really, really hungry. I want to be really hungry. And if we respond in obedience, like the crowd of 3,000 here that responded to Peter on the day of Pentecost, then Peter's words are equally true for us. The promise of the Spirit poured out remains true for us. It's part of our inheritance. Now, I'd like Julie and the band to, to lead us in worship. And as we do that, I am going to go down over here. And I would appreciate it if someone from the ministry team or leader or small group leader would come and pray for me because I need that more. And if you want to come as well, that's fine. And if lots of you come, you might just want to make clear whether you're coming to pray for somebody else or to be prayed for, or both. But I'm going to be there, so maybe you want to consider that as well. The promise is for us. Father, help us to grasp hold of your promise, to experience all of that has been made available to us because of Pentecost, and to experience it repeatedly. For the glory of Jesus. Amen.